A topic that has been in the news recently and of late has been the issue of the derogatory and hurtful cartoons insulting Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and then the French President Macron defending the right to broadcast it as widely as possible. So today we'll explore the Islamic viewpoint with regards to speech. We will look at the concept of free speech in the context of Western secular liberalism and whether France actually has any moral ground to lecture Muslims or anyone else on human values. And then finally, uh, some ways that we can respond to such hostile provocation. When it comes to speech in Islam, it's acknowledged as a powerful force for either good or evil. In the narration of Ibn Hibban, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tells us, The greatest potential for good or evil lies between these two lips of ours, between this, this tongue that lies between our two lips. Hadith of Bukhari in Al-Abd, a person will speak a word and this word could be the means and cause of him plummeting into the fire of hell further than the distance between the east and the west. So in Islam, the limitations on how to use speech are very, very clear. Uh, in Qurtubi, Tafsir of Qurtubi, uh, the ayah is quoted Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs us to speak good words to people and Atarahimahullah he says that this includes everyone not just Muslims it includes Jews and Christians as well Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he gives the command to Musa and Harun salam to go to the tyrant Pharaoh Allah says that speak to him soft words Hadith uh, narration Al Mu'min Man Saliman Nas Millisanihi Wayadihi. The one version of this hadith that a believer is a person whom mankind at large, all humans, are safe from the evils of his tongue and his hand. So Islam acknowledges the power of spe speech and it acknowledges it to be the cornerstone of a harmonious society. The basic building block is the family and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs us regarding our parents and what we should be speaking to them. فَلَا تَقُلْ لَهُمَا Don't even mention a symbol or a sign or a, a small, small sign that you are disrespecting them in any way. And then Allah azza wa jal goes on to instruct us وَقُلْ لَهُمَا قَوْلًا كَرِيمًا and rather speak to them very honorable words, very good words. Be very, very particular about how you address your parents. So there are rules governing the use of words within a Muslim society, within an Islamic country. You will have the laws of qadaf, of slander. You can't go around accusing anyone willy-nilly of zina, for example. These are not taken lightly. If you, if you mention something like this, you accuse someone of these, they, you will have to face the legal ramifications of it. You will be taken to court and there will be punishment that will be implemented. Backbiting and slander are reckoned among the major sins in Islam. So Islam is very, very clear on the limitations there are with regards to speech and that this 
in essence produces an ordered society. This is very necessary for an ordered society. Now let's look at the other side of the coin. Let us look at the free speech or freedom of expression which the French president wishes to foist on the Muslim community in particular. We won't go into all the details, but you can read up more on it on your own, but we'll just cover the basic uh, aspects. So the media frames this as a clash between two camps. They want to make out that it's an enlightened camp on the one hand, standing for freedom of expression, and then you've got the other camp from the Dark Ages wanting to curtail this freedom of expression. So framing it in this way is very ingenious. It, it actually means that if you take an opposing stance and uh, you, you speak out against it in any way, even if it's in an academic or intellectual way, then you will be deemed to be against an ideal, in fact, a human value. But in reality, the clash is not, not, it's not this, in this way. The clash is between freedom to insult and what we are asking for, freedom from insult. That is what it's supposed to be. That as humanity, we need to have these social values and civil values. When you look at free speech in its absolute and true form, it's never practiced, even in the countries that are pushing for it. In fact, if you really want to implement free speech, then everyone should be free to insult anyone else. The employee should be free to insult his employer. Children should be free to insult their parents. In reality, it doesn't work like that. If any employee has to be insulting to his boss, you can imagine the ramifications. His job is on the line. Uh, no society uh, teaches their children to be disrespectful to their parents. In reality, if this was truly practiced, society would have collapsed long time ago. So no one practices it in reality, but they demand that the Muslims should be practicing it in totality. That is hypocrisy at its highest level. It is a basic human civility to respect others. When you insult someone, it means that you are being rude, you are being arrogant. And if you look at this free speech in Western society, it's flawed both in theory and it has been politicized in practice. In the, to show the, how flawed it is, it is impossible to implement, even in liberal democracies. It doesn't exist in absolute form. Every country you go to will have some form of laws of defamation. You can't just go around speaking anything you want about anyone else. Laws of sedition. You try tweeting that we need to assassinate or you should be assassinating this particular president. You, can, you will immediately see the ramifications of that. There are professional and journalistic standards. You can't uh, you can't uh, go over a certain line. You try naming your upstart company Google and then explain it to the team of high-class lawyers that you are practicing your freedom of expression. Or go to a, a, an airport and you call out loudly, there's a bomb here. You can well imagine what will happen, what will be the outcome of saying that. You cannot plead that I'm just practicing my right of free speech or freedom of expression. You go to Germany, they have criminalized the denial of the Holocaust. In writing or verbally, if you deny it, it is deemed uh, an offense and you are liable for criminal prosecution. The UK has the Public Order Act. Write any grossly offensive communication or anything deemed offensive and you will face the brunt of the law. So in 
absolute terms, free speech is not practiced anywhere. It's flawed in its actual concept. Number two, it is also politicized. It's used as a political tool and used selectively. Liberal secularists use it as a notion of freedom, not actual freedom. It doesn't mean actual freedom. And it's been ongoing through history. In 850, the year 850, there were Christian pious people, so-called pious people, who would go to the great mosque of Cordoba. They would, this was in Muslim Spain in Andalus, and they would loudly call out blasphemous statements. What was their objective? Their objective was that they wanted to be martyred, they wanted to be killed for this and provoke a reaction because many of the Christians were entering Islam at that time. In today's time, Macron is none the better. His ratings have dropped and he's now looking for political leverage. He's looking for a way to win public favor and he's latched on to the, the free speech aspect. The reality is somewhat different. Just, in, in just to give you a current example, when the Turkish president Erdogan said that Macron needed to go for a mental checkup, the reaction to that freedom of speech, freedom of expression, was the recall of the French ambassador to Turkey. Why did they get so upset? If they got upset over this, you can imagine why the Muslim world is becoming upset at the verification of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So we're not against critique of ideas, of beliefs. We're not going to stop you from engaging in any serious debate, academic or intellectual debate. This is not what we are against. We are against insult. There are plenty of Christian Jewish literature that critique Islam, but it has not resulted in outrage. You go to the bookshops, you'll find it everywhere. Non-Muslim citizens in a Muslim country can practice their religious beliefs in their places of worship or in their homes. And these are obviously offensive to our sensibilities. The Noble Quran alludes to this. They say, that they say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is part of a trinity. That's what the Christians say. Yet, at the same time, the Quran uh, commands us, وَلَا تَسُبُّ الَّذِينَ يَدَعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ فَيَسُبُّ اللَّهَ عَنْدُوًا مِغَيْرِعٍ Don't curse, don't swear the false gods that they call upon from, besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because in, in return, the reaction would be that they would start cursing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there's, there's no... Uh, way that this can be uh, curtailed because it's been ongoing it will always go on they teach their children uh, the Christian values and they teach it teach them about their Christian beliefs and it has not been stopped in Muslim countries the court of Baghdad in uh, the Abbasid Empire or the Umayyad Khilafah Muslim Spain they saw the, the non-Muslim scholars debating issues of belief right in the court with our ulama and our scholars. So when it's free speech that the Western world is speaking about, it's an absolutely flawed concept. That brings us to an even more important point. Does France even have the moral high ground to lecture us on human values? Let me take you back a few years. When, within the first three decades of the French invasion of Muslim Algeria from 1830 to 1860, one million Muslims lost their, lost their lives out of a population of three million. That means 30% of the country were, was killed by the French, either due to their wars or to their massacres or due to disease and famine, which were a result of this colonialism. This continued until 1962, well over 100 years. And in this period, over 10 million Algerians died as a direct result of French rule. 
This is the human values they want to uh, preach to others. In 1843, when they first invaded Algeria, Lieutenant Colonel Lucien de Montagnac, he said, everything must be seized. There must be no distinction of age or gender. Children, women, don't bring me an, uh, an Arab alive. Kill all of them who are over 15. Ship out the women and children to some islands offshore. This was the mentality that they maintained the colonial rule and grip over Algeria, over Mali, over the other countries that they ruled. In, uh, on, on the 8th of May 1945, Germany surrendered, France was liberated. Yet these same French now turned their guns on the Muslims of Algeria. The Muslims had served in the French army, fighting for the freedom of France. Yet they turned their guns on the Muslims. Uh, the, 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 within a few weeks of the end of World War II, uh, 30,000 Muslims were killed by the French through vigilante killings, through rape, through air bombings, through lynchings. This all happened very, very recently. And if you think it got, so this was up till 1962. That's not very long ago. Some of the French who had perpetrated these evils against the Muslims in these countries are still alive today. And their children are alive and their grandchildren. And if you think this has got any better post-independence, 1962, uh, Algeria was given independence, and think again, in reality, the French colonies have been put under a grip that is very hard to break. The French colonies had to deposit 50% of the gold reserves in France, and that is continuing up till today. France has the world's fifth largest gold reserve. No gold mines, but they've got the fifth largest gold reserve. And what, um, what, what do they use to claim, or why do they say, they justi how do they justify keeping that gold? They say that we are setting up, we are, we are keeping in putting in place a common currency for these eight African countries that they were formerly ruling. In essence, this is just controlling them financially and politically. Uh, look at another country like Mali. Mali is also a Muslim country, also ruled by France. It's the third largest gold producer in Africa, about 60 tons. Uh, a mine from Mali annually, and it's worth around $6 billion. Yet Mali only gets $600 million of the value of that gold, or just 10%. And you can imagine that all goes to the government of Mali. And that government is largely educated uh, in French institutions, or they were trained in French military acad academies, and so forth and so on. And we know exactly where money that goes to any governments generally ends up. It doesn't, it doesn't end up uh, helping the people on the ground. So since independence, Mali has, with French military help, with French financial oversight, managed to become one of the most heavily indebted nations in the world. That's thanks to this inhumane French financial colonialism. Suffice to say, these continued crimes against humanity mean that France has absolutely no moral ground to lecture anyone on human values at all. Then we come to what is our response to these uh, provocations, and especially as minorities in a non-Muslim country. We'll touch on that very briefly. So we look to our ulama for guidance, and they have provided these during similar incidents in the past. And rest assured, it's not going to be the last. It's not going to be the last. So our ulama tell us that firstly, we need to consult with the ulama, especially of that country, on what is the best cause of action to take.
we need to understand the ramifications of what we do and how it will impact the society at large. Number two, we need to express our anger within the legal framework of that country. And it doesn't mean we sit back and relax and we say, never mind, we're a minority. Make your voice known. And in fact, it has, it has very, very great benefits. It has an impact. I'll give you one example of Arnold van Duren. This, was, uh, this is a Dutch politician. He was part of a, one of the most Islamophobic right-wing parties in Holland. Uh, he then goes on to make a film insulting Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The subsequent protests around the world against this film made him start thinking. And this he says himself, he says he started reading about Islam because he wanted to know why are so many people so passionate about Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Why are so many billions of, of Muslims, we ourselves and so many other billions, ready to give up our lives for the defense of the honor of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Which are the personality on saying his name? So many salutations, so many greetings are automatically sent upon him. If I say Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, automatically most of you would recite durood upon Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in essence greeting Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So he started reading upon Islam, he became a Muslim, and then he went on Hajj, and then he went to Medina Munawwara, and he said, my, my, one of my reasons for coming to Medina Munawwara is to personally apologize to Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for the hurt I had heaped upon him previously. So he then goes on to start a Muslim party in Holland. His son also became a Muslim. And in fact, one of the right-hand men of the leader of that party, uh, he also accepted Islam and became a Muslim. Thirdly, we should not give in to violence and destruction of property and lives. We need to be very conscious of how we deal with these uh, insults upon our Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We need to see what did Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum uh, do in response to these things. Number four, where possible, we can hit them financially, then by all means, boycott the products that come from these countries. And obviously this works best on the international level uh, with our Muslim countries taking the lead. Uh, whether we have any hope in that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But that would be an ideal uh, response to these countries. And then we shouldn't only concentrate on this particular issue when it comes up, you must remember there's a lot of other Islamophobia. We need to highlight everything that is uh, being directed against the Muslims. And then finally, the greatest thing is that we need to follow the Sunnah even more. We expect it from the enemies of Islam to spew hatred against Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But we who love Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's well within our control to bring more of his lifestyle in our appearance and in our actions. This will demonstrate truly our love and show the world that our allegiance to Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam is our source of pride. An Nabiyu, awla bil mu'minin min anfusihim. The Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is closer to the believers, closer to me and you than our own souls, than our own selves. Sahaba radiyallahu anhum showed practically as they uh, used their bodies to shield Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam from the strikes of the swords and the arrows. We can show it in our dress, in our appearance, in the way we greet and the way we eat that in a way we interact with people, that the sunnah is our first priority. Uh, Insha'Allah, we tonight will be having a talk by Molana Musa Kaji, who is the Ustad, who is an Ustad at Darul Mazadwal, he's also the Khalifa of Molana Abdul Hamid Sab in our masjid after Maghrib tonight, try and participate in that program. And we also make dua for all those who are sick, and we also pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant safety to all uh, in this particular pandemic and 
in this particular situation. Wa akhiru da'wana and alhamdulillah.